Hello, welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds and those of us who worship them, all set in the delightfully entertaining and not too outlandish imaginary world of an environmental Armageddon. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter, a passionate bird enthusiast with a shiny new microphone and a tongue often in my cheek, but with a desire to spread the word that birds are brilliant and we need to look after them. Each week, a guest joins me to discuss the five bird species that they could not live without, the five they would choose above all others to survive with them in a barren, flooded, post-apocalyptic world of my own evil construct. No listening to their favourite tunes on a beach for them, oh no. And if that wasn't unpleasant and derivative enough, they then have to choose one of those five birds to be their ultimate champion, and to go beak to beak in a top Trumpian battle against my favourite, the mighty Peregrine Falcon. My special guest on Golden Grenades this week is author Jill Lewis. Jill's passion for wildlife emerged at an early age when she established her own zoo and hospital for small animals and insects in her back garden. This led to her first successful career as a vet, taking her to the wilds of Africa and to the frozen lands of the Arctic. Her knowledge and love of animals led her into writing, often about the wild world and our human relationship with it. She has written a number of books for both younger and older children alike, including The Closest Thing to Flying, Gorilla Dawn, Skyhawk and Skydancer, and her books have been translated into many languages and won awards worldwide. Last year, she contributed to the bird fundraising book Red 67, writing about the red-listed white-fronted goose, and even went to the lengths of finding a translator for Icelandic text. Now that's dedication for you. She describes herself as a wannabe birder without patience or a telescope, and she writes from a treehouse in her garden, surrounded by squirrels and birds. Hello, Jill, and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hi, Kit. Thank you for inviting me here to be with you today. We are recording this at the end of 2020, and it will get released um, early in the new year, I hope. 2020, let's be frank, it's been a pig of a year for a lot of people. How have you survived it? I think like many people, having to make lots of adjustments, um, really sort of, you know, personal adjustments as well in this time. But again, it's been the natural world which actually has given that sense of um, diversion and and relief as well. Um, We've done a lot more walking and cycling, which has been fantastic, and explored footpaths and areas which I've never explored before near me. So it's so from that side, that's been that's been lovely. Yeah, I think it certainly has been a, a refuge for a lot of people, hasn't it? Getting outdoors and investigating wild spaces and nature. That's, Definitely. You're you know well known for your books for children and how they can inspire them to develop a, a love of nature and the outdoors. And your love of nature also started at an early age. Could you tell us about the first bird you've chosen for us today? Bird number one. Yes, well, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what was the bird of my childhood that really got me interested in nature? And I think it has to be the soundscape of a British summer. I grew up in just on the outskirts of the city of Bath. And for me, that feeling of the summer holidays of freedom, being able to go down to the down the garden, uh, make dens, it was the sound of the blackbird that wonderful melodious sound of the British summer and it was it was associated with freedom really down there so that was my that was that's my first bird of choice. The song of the blackbird particularly in springtime you know I think it's it's so evocative and and a lot of people would actually 
say it tops even the song thrush or the nightingale and they're also like massive panickers though i find you know in the garden yes you certainly know when there are other sort of sparrowhawks or anything around don't you because the blackbirds are the first to sort of notice them and the first to sort of panic and um shy away um i guess in that sense you could you could argue that they're they're pointing out things to you you know <laughs> look there's a sparrowhawk just on that note i remember that one of the big predators we had in our garden was actually our cat. Mm. Um, I was absolutely obsessed with animals when I was little and I managed, begged and begged mum and dad to get me a cat called Twinkle, who was a killer cat, um, like all cats, unfortunately, which is why I don't have a cat now because um, I sort of value the bird life in my garden. But I loved this cat, Twinkle. And she wasn't just a killer to um, birds. She would just attack people from under bushes. She'd just like go at your legs and sort of <laughs> savage your legs. She really was a she really was a vicious cat, but, but I loved her. Um, but I do remember, remember there was one day when I was down in the garden and there was one blackbird that I recognised because I called it white spot. It had a little white feather um, on its flank. And so I could recognise this bird. And I think being a child, I really wanted to have this kind of friendship with a bird. It was my bird friend as a sort of really young child. Um, and of course, the day came when Twinkle was skulking under the bushes where White Spot, my favourite blackbird, was. And she pounced. And I just remember seeing Twinkle pounce on this White Spot, grab White Spot in her claws and in her mouth. And I remember diving forward and pulling this bird from from Twinkle's mouth sort of having to try and avoid her teeth as well and it was this it was actually one of those moments where as a child you feel you really sort of saved a life um you feel you've made a difference to that to that little bird I mean I thought that bird would be my friend for life somehow <laughs> saving it but it was, it was it was one of those magical moments of childhood which I think partly went into me wanting to then to become a vet um in my later life it's that feeling that you've made a difference Twinkle, because of <laughs> Twinkle and and those killer instincts, yeah, you 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 went down the path of becoming a vet. That's that's fantastic, and I'm presuming White Spot went on to live another day. White White Spot seemed to go on for years, unless there was an identical um, blackbird with a white spot that came on after after that bird. But it just seemed to be around for a good eight years. So maybe right. it was a different one, or maybe it was the same. The Legend of White Spot, maybe. Could be a new book. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I think, you know, you, you do hear about people having these sort of um, recognisable blackbirds that they that almost develop a, a sort of friendship with and they, they can mm. become quite tame in, in some cases, can't they? A bit like robins. And I, I was reading recently that 27 million birds are taken by cats every year in the UK. But actually, there's also some questionable, well, that the RSPB aren't sure if that's having a significant effect in terms of the number of the, the rates of declines and things like that, you know, whether they're catching weak or injured birds or, or, right. or birds that aren't going to make it anyway because of uh, natural causes. So I'm not going to come down so heavily on cats, although, <laughs> yes, I don't have a cat either for obvious reasons. One interesting thing I read about blackbirds as well, and I, and I think it probably apply, applies to a lot of birds around the world that are black, is that they can be bad omens. But there's an old belief in Cumbria that a blackbird pecking at your window is a sign of impending doom and that there's going to be a death in the family or, or of a loved one. So there you go. Blackbirds, oh, fabulous think, yeah, birds think, and, you know, might might be a harbinger of doom. Yes, yeah. I think that, that's often the way, isn't it, with um, 
and crows and corvids yeah. often seen, aren't they? But um, and we often get a jackdaw down our chimney actually because they happen to nest <laughs> on there, and they don't seem to be harbingers of doom. They um, they're, they're, they're amazing birds. Yeah, they are. And they, they love a chimney. It- jackdaws i've got them on mine as well but but thankfully they can't get down it we've actually funnily enough hearing you talk about white spot we've got in our village christened by my son gimpy winged jackdaw and he's a jackdaw that can't fly he's got a he's got a lame wing and he's now into his fourth year just walking around gardens yeah so we have a soft spot for him and and get nervous every time we see a cat near him Oh, I hope, hope he lives a long and um, healthy life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good old gimpy wing. Right, let's move on. And you've picked another reasonably well-known bird for bird number two. Bird number two. two, two, two. Yes, yeah, so well, bird number two. Um, if the blackbird was my childhood, then I was trying to think what would be bird number two in those sort of teenage years, those quite kind of turbulent, tricky years when you're trying to sort of, you know, find who you are. And I remember loving primary school. Um, so my childhood of primary school, that was great. And then going to secondary school was much harder. And I remember it was a place where to show any interest in wildlife or bird life was seen as strange and nerdy. You had to keep your head down, don't put your head above the parapet. And so I think I sort of, that was where I sort of stopped really showing that real interest in wildlife. And I sort of had to pretend to be interested in fashion and all these sorts of things, which as a teenager, I wasn't. Um, and so the, so the second bird was actually the bird that really sort of reawakened that real love of bird life. And it's the oyster catcher. And it's this bird because when I was a teenager, my dad kept a little small boat on the Lucha Estuary in the north of Gower. And it was a place where... He grew up, so he kept the boat there. And whenever we went there for the summer holidays or for weekends, it would just be this release from this real sort of claustrophobic space of school being a teenager, uh, where suddenly you just go out onto the estuary and the moment that the boat sort of left the harbour and you were out on the sea, um, there were these big wide skies, big wide sands and this constantly changing landscape. And it was just a, such a sort of relief and a release just being there and sort of waking up and seeing the dawn and hearing the tide gurgling under the boat. Um, and also seeing the, oyster, the first thing you'd see with the oyster catchers all running along the sand with their really striking black and white plumage and their orange um, beaks and feet. So, yes, the oyster catcher is that bird which held me, I suppose. We were talking a little bit before we pressed record earlier, weren't we? And we were talking about your dad and the fact that he loved the estuaries and he was always messing about with boats and getting you out there. And he sounds like a a wonderful man. And I, my my favourite childhood book was Danny Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. And I, I kind of have a little bit of an image of that kind of relationship with you and your dad taking you out. And I think you you mentioned he taught you how to catch flat feet, uh, flat fish rather, with your feet. Yeah, absolutely. He's um, he, he. I remember him teaching um, me that with sort of just standing in the sand as the tide's coming in over your feet, staying very, very still. And then you see as the tide comes running in, you see the little flatfish sort of moving in with the tide. And then you sort of shimmy your feet a little bit nearer and then sort of put your foot over one and manage to catch one. They were, they were too small to sort of keep and eat or anything like that. But it was just knowing that. It was learning that 
skill it was, I suppose it's one of feels like one of those survival skills I suppose but yes dad was a great he just he loved the sea but he was always one of these people would point out all the dangers and the tide that comes into the Lucker estuary is very very fast and especially in certain points of it certain points of the tide um it's fast so he'd always say because I used to think I mean I'm, I'm a fairly good swimmer and he used to go you'll never swim against the tide you can never beat the sea <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember he would sort of I'd have to tie a rope around myself and then he'd throw me out of the boat and he'd say see if you can swim it <laughs> see if you can swim against the tide see if you can swim against it <laughs> I'd be there you know paddling my best front crawl but still moving further and further away from the anchored boat and then he'd haul me haul me back in um he'd say see you'll never beat the sea so it was <laughs> <laughs> but it was and it was great you know great times out there um on the estuary just just wonderful really yeah that's a fantastic image and to think that that was better than uh the other things you could have been doing as a teenager it, it, it's a it's a wonderful <laughs> image so oyster catchers I, I i've been looking them up i mean it's a bird that we're fairly familiar with and and a bird that we associate with the coast but also Obviously, I think a lot of us now see them inland and on tops of buildings and, and they're nesting on tops of schools and factories and things these days, aren't they? They're quite adaptable birds. But I love some of the old names that go with them and they've been called over the years Oik, Skeldro, Shadler, Scotty and Kleeper. And in Sweden, it's known as the Strandskatter which means beach magpie, which I guess is quite appropriate. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? I like yeah. that. And and similar to an old English name of sea pie, which, you know, is quite cute as well. I'd personally go with pied mud poker, but that would just be me, um, or possibly car alarm impersonator. Another in interesting fact, though, is that they're, they're, they're a very long-lived bird. bird that was ringed in 1967 was retrapped in 2002, making it 35 years old. And it's the to this day, it holds the longevity record for any wader. Yeah, Gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's amazing. There you go. And did you know this? They can catch a cockle every 72 seconds. Is yeah. that right? Apparently so. And and in terms of the worries that fisher fishermen and uh, cockle catchers yeah. you know, in, in, in the past. <laughs> yeah, cockle. Yeah. Um, well, they used to my, worry my, that they would take too many. Well, that's interesting because uh, my my great grandmother was a cockle picker, cockle picker on um, the Welsh estuary in Pencloud. Um, ah. So she, so maybe she would have seen the oyster catchers as um, after her, after yeah. her, cockles, after her livelihood. Yeah, after yeah. Her livelihood. That's interesting. Well, they, they did they did actually have a cull in Wales. Uh, I believe sometime in the early 70s I can't remember exactly when I didn't write it down but the Ministry of Agriculture granted um, a license for there to be a cull they took 10,000 oyster oh. catchers in a short period and cockles still continued to the to decline so apparently it wasn't the oyster catchers fault after all um, never is, is it? <laughs> yeah that's an interesting little thing yeah, we've discovered yeah. there. okay so that was the oyster catcher the bird that we all know and love now Moving on, let's talk about your third bird, which is a bird that might be a bit less familiar to some of us. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> yes, well, the third bird is the Scarlet Ibis. And I chose this bird because I was thinking, well, moving into my sort of 20s, when really was a time when I did some more travelling around the world and seeing different birds around the world and saw sort of many, many different sort of amazing um birds and different varieties just the astonishing sort of color of birds and you know many sort of tropical areas 
I, I always remember going to Zambia and hearing that lovely soundscape of the ground hornbills sort of booming over the grasslands. Um, and Costa Rica and seeing these resplendent quetzal birds. But for me, I think it came back to the scarlet ibis, which I saw in the Caroni Swamp in Trinidad. Uh, because there's always something really special about seeing large groups of birds um, mm. together, large flocks flying. And it's also that sort of moment of um, anticipation because you would go out onto the Caroni Swamp and wait. And as the sort of sky is darkening, this lovely, beautiful, sort of hazy um, blue, purple colour, then the scarlet ibis start flying back from their feeding grounds in Venezuela and they fly over the Gulf of Paria and then back into the Caroni Swamp in Trinidad. And there's something almost luminous about them. They're like these sort of bright red lanterns that just come in all together and then start roosting in the swamp. And it's absolutely beautiful and still and just really magical moments. So that's the scarlet ibis. They're a fantastic bird that, that I've never seen. But if ever a name was appropriate, you know, scarlet ibis. I mean, they are stunningly scarlet, apart from the little black wing tips. It's they are. Wonderful and, and, looking birds. and they seem to somehow, they seem to somehow sort of emit light. I don't know. When, when, they're, when you're in that sort of dark dusk, and they just, they do seem to glow. It's just amazing seeing them. And you're right, seeing, seeing birds in such big numbers, as well as, well as such spectacular birds. And, and there are decent sized birds as well. It's not not a small flock of knot or starling or whatever, you know, these are, these are big, gaudy, bright red birds, you know, in massive numbers. It, it must have been an incredible spectacle. And I'm, I'm, I'm really jealous. I'm even more jealous because I actually went to Trinidad and Tobago many years ago, probably 20 years ago now. And the reason for my trip was, was completely different. It was Newcastle United had just been knocked out of the semi-final of the FA Cup. And the, the team went on a tour to Trinidad and Tobago to cheer them up at the end of the season. And it, crazy, but it was you could actually go with the team. There was tours advertised. And so for 900 quid, I went for a, a week with Newcastle United and about 20 other fans to Trinidad and Tobago. And, you know, we, we played football against them. We, you know, we went and watched them play against local teams and we went out clubbing and drinking with it. It wouldn't happen now. It was it was simpler times, Jill. Um, <laughs> but, you weren't you weren't tempted to sneak out um, then and go to the go to the swamp and see the scarlet you know, ibis. You know, I, I, it was in that period where, as a as a younger man, I was more interested in in other things, and I think I spent most of the daylight hours recuperating <laughs> from the nights before. To my shame. To, to, to witness that at the at the Caroni Swamp is is something I'll probably regret um, for a long time to come. Maybe, maybe yeah. again, maybe on a sort of repeat tour, you could sort of fit them in, couldn't you? Maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I think I think I would definitely do that now. I'd maybe forego the goat race that I went to and go to Caroni <laughs> Swamp instead. Yeah, I think that would. I'll you know, com- combine the two, maybe. Um. <laughs> race a goat to the swamp, right? So. On that note, let's let's move on to your fourth choice. Bird number four. So my fourth choice was, I suppose, the, going into my thirties um, and not doing quite so much travelling, um, but ha- starting a young family in Somerset. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, oh, I'm in this lovely, beautiful sort of rural 
countryside. Um, I thought I'd bring my children up, really show them, you know, the, the wildlife around Somerset. And while we're lucky to in our garden, we've got quite a lot of trees. So we've got, we're lucky to have tree creepers and um, woodpeckers. And at night we hear tawny owls. We've got a few on along a line of trees. I suddenly became aware when I was going out for walks with them that actually the Somerset countryside around us is really depleted in nature. Um, we've got lots of big pastures, but without any um, margins near the hedgerows. Um, so don't get many barn owls. Um, the hedgerows are very sort of flails every every year. Um, so there aren't that many winter berries. And I remember thinking, well, there should be more wildlife around here. And one of the places I would take my children to is a local woods, which was set up by a community to sort of rewild, I suppose, 40, 40 acres. And there we do see barn owls and, and other animals. But I think for them, feeling in this rather sort of nature depleted local area, the one bird which just really reminded me that the wild is there is the cry of the buzzard. And I, I love buzzards. They're you know, now, luckily around us, very common birds of prey. But they're those ones which, when every time you see them, you just have to stop and look at them. And when you hear that sort of wild cry, it's almost like an eagle cry. It almost makes you, it reminds, it reminds you that the wild is still there and sort of still needs to be um, fought for as well. Um, and so while in Somerset, I think there's some really positive things about Somerset. We've got the cranes coming back. There are some wonderful wetland projects happening um, but again we just need we need more of that and I think that buzzard for me is the symbol of we need to bring back the wild. Yeah absolutely and I'm lucky I, I live in Northumberland in a, in a village and on the, on, the, on the edge of the village and there's, there's a couple of buzzards just down the street from me and I love it when you you know you, you can stop and watch them soaring and, and hearing that cry and it does sound it, it's evocative of the wild like you say and um, even for me, you know, not being too far away from town, but yeah, it is. A, it's a it's a wonderful thing to hear, and it always makes me sort of look up and smile and and think for a minute. They're great, great birds, but they've had a pretty bad rap over the years, haven't they, buzzards? You know, even centuries old. I was I was looking this up, and one nineteenth century author referred to them as a dull, stupid, heavy bird, a lazy, sleepy, cowardly fellow who dozes away half his time on some ro old rotten stump. You know, which is pretty harsh, isn't it? Crazy. Falconers used to refer to them as a useless kind of hawk, and I'm, I'm guessing that's because it, they didn't sort of behave the way they wanted them to. And as we know, old buzzard is is a sort of well-oiled insult, isn't it? I mean, poor old buzzard. You know, he's, he's had a really bad rap over these years, and I think it still hasn't ended really with the buzzard, has it? And, you know, now a, a bird that is persecuted still to this day, despite being protected for legally for, I don't know what, 130, 140 years. You know, we still hear of gamekeepers targeting them to, to protect their game birds. Absolutely. And um, and it's it's such a sort of crying shame when you sort of hear, when you see these reports about buzzers, whether, whether or not they've been poisoned or shot or trapped. Um, and as you say, often, especially in the sort of south and the lowlands uh, near where I am, one of the big problems is obviously gamekeepers protecting um, pheasant poults. Um, and, you know, it's not going to make a difference whether or not 
one buzzard takes one of sort of 60 million <laughs> pheasants released each year, then it's really not going to make a difference. And it's, it is, it's very sad. And you just, you just wonder that actually, you sort of wish that people could recognize that, that sort of really wild sort of cry of theirs and sort of feel that same, feel that same feeling that this is, this is, this is a wild, you know, wild bird of prey, which we're so lucky to see you know, near, near us and to remember that. I do hope that there's a lot of people out there that have the same affection for them as, as we do and that hopefully as time goes by and, and people sort of get out and about more, they do sort of respond to that. On a lighter note, one of the, one of the things I like about buzzards and, and some other birds is the Latin, I love the Latin names of birds and the, the buzzard is Butio Butio and I, lo- I love birds that just repeat their name twice, you know, like... Oriolus, Oriolus, or Pika Pika. It's like, always makes me think of like Pele or Madonna, you know, they've just got one name, but they're even better because they repeat it twice. It's, it's just something that's always tickled me over the years. Maybe it's probably just because they're the easier ones to remember. Your next bird, your, your final choice today, is, is also a bird mired in controversy and persecution. Tell us about your final choice. Bird number five. Well, my final choice is the hen harrier and i'll come around to the decision why i chose this bird because this is the sort of fifth bird going through sort of almost the decades of my life so in the fifth decade of my life when in my 40s that was when i when i was a published writer writing for children um, and my first book was sky hawk which is a story about how an osprey connects two communities one in scotland and one in the gambia and as i was writing i was very much trying to write about nature about humans and our relationship with the natural world and as I was writing these books when I was doing the research I read Mark Avery's wonderful book Inglorious about the hen harrier and the controversy associated with upland land use and it started to really open my eyes to the, the, the management or mismanagement of land in this country and the heavy persecution, especially of birds of prey. And so I wrote, I did lots of research. I did lots of research, both speaking to people, both lots of research and visiting some of the upland areas. And as a result, I wrote Sky Dancer, which is a story about a boy, a gamekeeper's son called Joe, who has to navigate this world on both sides. He's 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 at the epicentre of, of the controversy, really. And it's his journey through this and through finding a young hen harrier chick um, that he comes to the realisation that actually we have to change our, the, the landscape for people and for wildlife too to benefit both. And it also, I think it was the book and the bird which really made me realise that actually for us to really succeed in trying to help the wild and rewilding um, and all the issues surrounding this, we all have to have a voice and use that voice. And it really made me realise that as a writer, you can use your voice to help be a part of the, the whole of raising awareness about the issues. Hen harriers are the poster boy for persecution, really, aren't they? They're such stunning birds. They, you know, are, are persecuted to within a hair's breadth of being extinct in England, particularly, and it's still going on. I, like you, you know, since I've learned more about them and and understood more about what's going on and reading Mark Avery's wonderful book Inglorious, which if anybody listening to this hasn't come across that book, both Jill and I would obviously heartily recommend that. It tells you all about the issues facing hen harriers and, and why they are so controversial, but shouldn't be. 
you know, and we should be able to share the uplands with these birds. But they're, they're just incredible. And I'm guessing if you've been out to see them as well, you'll have seen food passes and the sky dancing routines and breathtaking birds. Well, I, I only actually saw my first hen harrier this year, just after the first lockdown. We'd had a holiday booked up to Scotland. We went to Arran, um, yeah. the Isle of Arran, and that's where I saw my first hen harrier. And um, absolutely, absolutely stunning. It's one of those moments, you know, where you just feel the hairs on the back of your neck go up. Um, just wonderful seeing them. And as you say, they shouldn't really be, the birds aren't controversial, but the sort of illegal persecution of them yeah. is, you know, controversial. And really, that's that's the fundamental problem that d- driven grouse shooting is dependent, for it to be economically viable, driven grouse shooting is dependent upon persecution, upon keeping the numbers of hen harriers, but also golden eagles down, goshawks, peregrines otherwise driven grass more can't be economically viable and of course there's the whole issues of the very intensive land use which yeah. doesn't allow other habitats to to form and grow yeah the, there's a there's a lot of problems with it and it's i think starting to be you know looked at in terms of the, the big ngos and and how the future of driven grouse shooting particularly is, is going to be conducted. Be interesting to see what happens over the next the next few years. And it would be good to see a few more hen harriers, one of my favourite birds as well, and, and, a, and a wonderful one to end on. So thank you, Jill, for sharing with us your five bird species that you would take on the imaginary arc with you to survive this Armageddon that I've created with you. But as you know... Every guest on Golden Grenades has to choose one of their five birds to go claw to claw with my mighty peregrine in the Golden Grenades Best Bird Showdown. So, which bird have you chosen out of your five to be your champion in this epic battle and why? Uh, well, it has to be um, the hen harrier and, and it would easily beat the peregrine, I'm afraid. And the reason for this is really because of its moves. Now, I've been, over this recent lockdown, I've been a real fan of Strictly. (laughs) And one of the things watching Strictly is you can't just have the one move. You're not going to be successful if you just have the one move. You've got to have several moves. And so the peregrine, let's face it, it's only got one move, hasn't it? It doesn't go very fast horizontally. It doesn't do very much. It just sort of, all it can do really is just drop like a stone and pluck things out of the air. So whereas the hen harrier, the hen harrier has oodles of moves it can twist it can turn it can fly upside down it can catch things underneath another bird in the food pass it's got this beautiful sky dancing loop the loop it's 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 got it all it would it would win win strictly um definitely above the peregrine anytime so it's the hen harrier (laughs) well you make a very strong case here and people do you know think of the peregrine as a bit of a one-trick pony and and they're not as spectacular in terms of all of the the moves and and the acrobatics that the hen harrier does i think the hen harrier as i've mentioned is a bird very close to my heart too and considering everything that these magnificent creatures have to endure i think it would be churlish of me to heap even further misery on them by having them lose a silly podcast battle so hen harrier is this week's worthy winner Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So thank you so much, Jill, for coming on today and telling us about your, your five favourite birds. It's It's been lovely talking to you. So what what have you got planned for 2021? 2021. Well, I've got 
a, a few books out is really exciting, um, but one of them is a bird book and it's called Swan Song and it's set on the Welsh estuaries, which um, we were talking about earlier. And it's really a story about, it's about teenage uh, mental health, um, but it's also about the sort of restorative power of nature for us all. So that comes out in February and it's published by Barrington Stoke. It's probably well-timed too, I think, with everything that's happened over the past year. Yes, yes, yeah, I hope definitely. Well, thanks again, Jill. It's been lovely talking to you. Oh, great talking to you as well. So thank you very much for um, inviting me on the show. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in. And please do join me again next week when my special guest will be the writer and orchestral conductor, Lev Perikian. Until then, keep dancing. <laughs>